Well, Pastor and Derek and I like to trade off who's going to preach during graduation Sunday. Last year, it was his turn. This year, it is mine. And preparing for this message, I tried to put myself into the shoes of someone who had to speak to his son on graduation. So I began with this seed thought. If my son was graduating, and he was going off to be a model, <laughs> my son was graduating, this is what I would want him to know. So to properly write this, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to ask some deeper questions. What would it be like if your son was graduating? What if he was your oldest son and people said he looked just like you and while thinking about what you would say, a flood of memories rushed into your mind. Memories like taking him to the first day of school, getting him his first pair of nerdy glasses, walking step by step with him up the mountains of Wyoming, watching him work hard as a defensive leader in a soccer team and Eventually growing up and getting bigger muscles in you and making you laugh so hard that your belly hurt. What do you say to him? Good job. <laughs> He's not listening. He's not listening. What if many of the other grads are his fellow students and friends? You have known most of his life. Some may have even grown up a couple doors down or shared sleepovers together, competed against each other in sports teams. What would you tell him? What would you tell them as they were preparing their next big steps into the future? This is heavy to think about. Believe it or not, as we've been going through 2 Peter, this passage that we're going to come to today is the perfect message a dad could give to his son as he heads out into the world. So if you could turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at 1 through 7, and I've titled this, Graduates, Beware. This is not about following your heart. It's not going to be about chasing your dreams, hoping that your hat flies as high as your dreams. None of that. This is hoping that uh, you're prepared, really, to face the world. So let's hear what Peter has to say, 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And I've entitled this, Graduate, Graduates, 
Beware. Peter is uh, beginning with two aims. If you notice in verse 1, he wants to stir up those he loves. He says, this is my second letter. I'm writing to you, beloved. I'm writing to you, beloved. Beloved means the one I love. The one whose heart, my heart cares for. And what he wants to do is stir up wholesome thought. It says in verse 1, stirring up your sincere mind. The idea of having a sincere mind is to think rightly about the way the world really is. Being sincere. And I'm honest, uh, I think that's what graduates need to understand. They need to have a mind that is prepared and ready to face a world that honestly lies to them every single day. So do we. We need to have wholesome thought. We need to have sincere, sincere ability to discern who's lying to us, what they want from us, and what really is going on. The second thing is uh, verse 2. He's talking about how this commandment first came from the Holy Prophets. That's the Old Testament. Then it came to Christ, and Christ delivered them through the Holy Apostles. So what he's basically saying is that this message that he's going to give to those who he loves are from this book, and they are to be trusted. If I could leave my son one piece of advice, and his friends one piece of advice above all things, trust what is written down in this book more than anything else. Honestly. Because the world doesn't buy it. Trust what Jesus says. And put your whole life on his word. Your whole life. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. They're like silver, refined in a furnace, on the ground, purified seven times. Every time you purify silver, it makes it stronger, heavier, fuller. And this is purified seven times. That means these words are heavy. They're heavy. And so what Peter's going to say is the Holy Prophet spoke about it, the Lord talked about it, and now the apostles are warning you, be ready. Be ready for what? What is this warning about? Verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. In other words, I'll put it more relevant Put it in more relevant language. Graduates, beware of the man in the tweed jacket. And you'll understand what I mean in a second. I'm going to tell you my story. I left home to head to college at the tender young age of 18 on a warm August day. Because I recently graduated high school, I really believed I was ready for anything I now had a diploma, and that diploma meant I was a learned young gentleman equipped with all the knowledge I needed to know the face of the world. I really believed that. I was mature. I felt smart, and I was now a man. That diploma meant I was a man. One of my first classes in college was called the Dynamics of Religion. I took it because I was always interested in God, and it was an elective, and I thought it would be very interesting. And I wanted to learn more about faith. I really didn't know much. I thought I did. That's the irony. I thought I was really 
learned in scriptures, and I knew nothing. But when you're a high school senior, you think you do know everything. I did, at least. But I wasn't prepared for what I was about to be taught. My class was not about God. My class on dynamics of religion was how evolution and the progress of mankind and humanism led collective humanity from the dark ages of superstition into enlightenment. My class was honestly about how religion was made to mollify fear of these people running around in the bushes who worship pagan gods. That's what religion was, just to help them get through their fear. Fear of the bushes and the dark and the sun and the snake. And then enlightenment came and reason came where then it turned into worshiping a lot of gods, into worshiping one god, eventually worshiping a god in the form of a man named Jesus Christ. That is the epitome of humanism. Man's worshiping himself. That's what he taught me. And I can remember one of the first days of class, I raised my hand and I said, so what you're saying is that you don't believe Jesus is a real person. You think he's nothing more than a humanist ideal. And he smiled. Like that. Pick some lint off of his well-worn tweed jacket. And with patronizing eyes, he said, and I quote, I, I won't forget this, Oh, Mr. Weeks, I see you are a religious traditionalist. Did you know you are a dying breed? It'll be fun to have you in class, and it'll be my pleasure to enlighten you into new thinking, progressive thinking. I'll never forget that. I was, I was kind of shocked. I was taken aback. And I also was not mentally ready to face a 50-year-old man who for most of his life studied atheistic philosophy. I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know the arguments. I was like a mallard duck sitting in a lake in Kent County during hunting season. I was easy pickings. Through the course, he kept referring to the traditional faith as superstitious, something only grandma believes, and the, it's just an outdated myth that all true thinkers have abandoned. He kept saying it. And this is what he would often say. Isn't it about time you left the folly of your parents' faith and began thinking for yourself? It was subtle. The other students in the class never raised their hand or disagreed. It was an 8 o'clock in the morning class, so that's probably why they were mostly sleeping. But they, uh, they never argued. No one dissented from one word he said as he bashed God. And eventually I, the traditionalist, all alone, stopped fighting. I was lost. I was lost. Peter says, first of all, scoffers will come. They will. So in other words, don't be surprised. The world is full of scoffers, and it always will be. I think Christians genuinely get shocked. They get shocked when people don't believe the gospel. Or you tell them that Jesus exists, oh, come on. And Christians can't believe it. Sometimes we go into our shell and say, the world's against me. God says, no, scoffers are going to come. Not only that, but naturally we are antagonistic to God. We are born as enemies to God. So it shouldn't surprise us that people don't believe. God says here, 
Even in the last days, the idea is that scoffing will increase. That's what it means that knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. As the day approaches, scoffing will increase. And the thing about scoffers is that they persuade. They're always trying to persuade you to believe what they have to say. What's funny is Christians these days are told not to, not to argue, not to try to persuade. Really, the best Christian is the one who just lives it and shows his faith without talking. However, scoffers keep talking. Not only do they keep talking, they keep mocking. So, graduates, beware. Beware. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five examples of what I have found to be the general trend of the different scoffers in the world. And I'm just going to detail them for you so you can identify them when they come across. You won't be shocked. Like, wow. The first one is, graduates, beware of the proud cynic. The proud cynic, these people enjoy and relish in being bold about their unbelief. They like not believing and they joke about it and they love to mock you about your faith. They think it's hilarious and they'll abuse you and they'll get everybody else to laugh with them. You'll see it a lot on talk shows. You know, the, they have nighttime talk shows and the talk show will kind of mock Christianity and the whole crowd will be from, they'll be cynics as well, but they make it seem like everybody agrees that Christians are stupid. <laughs> you believe that? They're proud of it. A number of people will come to mind if you say, what are some celebrity Cynics, well, Bill Maher, Billy Joel is, Seth MacFarlane, Ricky Jarvis, the original creator of The Office from Britain, and I have pictured here Woody Allen. The reason I have Woody Allen pictured, he doesn't make that many movies anymore, but he did in the 60s and 70s, but to the Hollywood elite, this guy is just, he's kind of like one of their patriarchs of the Hollywood establishment. And here's what he said, and this is why I picked him. Listen to what he says, and he kind of talks kind of like that. Kind of talks like that, but he's cool. He's really cool. And he said, more than any, at any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. Isn't he so funny and cool? That's supposed to be so cool. You could either die and be totally extinct, or you could... Uh, have complete hopelessness. Oh, you're funny, Woody. See, that's the thing about cynicism. It makes you laugh at things that are utterly terrifying, as if it's no big deal. God says this is foolish. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Beware, graduate, of the moral agnostic. These people believe that you can still reject God and be good. People will say, you don't need to believe in God to be good. In fact, they even hint, they, they are now hinting that it is the Christian that has made the world miserable. Like the religious fanatic is the one that's ramped up all the wars. Even though they kind of, kind of ignore this guy in Russia who is an atheist called Stalin and this evolutionary theorist in Germany called Hitler. They killed kind of a lot of people, but I won't mention them because, you know, Christians, they had the Crusades and the Muslims are cutting off people's heads. It's the religious fanatics that are the dangerous ones. And so what they say is really the true humanist is the one that is not the hypocrite. There's this lady, Greta Christina. 
She is famous for writing a paper called, and listen to her paper, Comforting Thoughts About Death That Have Nothing to Do with God. It's a great paper. So when you die, there is no God, but I wrote this to comfort you about that. That you're facing a void, and you go into six feet of dirt, and you become worm food. It's a really good paper, is what she writes. Many people have said this paper is helpful in facing death without hope. And they said she is so kind and compassionate. That's what oozed out of the paper. Reading the book, she is writing. In her writing, she's really, what she's going to do is bash, she just bashes hypocritical Christians. Hypocrisy, which will be one person on this list. Which, really, they're, they're, they're an easy target. Hypocrites are an easy target. What she wants to prove is how the true humanists, at least they're genuine, so they're better. Ironically, what's interesting about the moral agnostics arguments is they are they're actually indirectly praising God because they're using his criteria of honesty and goodness to criticize false Christians. So they are actually lifting up God's ideals to fight against God. It's, it's bizarre. Romans 2.14 puts it like this. Did you know that the law of God is written on a non-Christian's heart? It is. The problem, however is that by whatever standard they judge, they will be judged by God of that standard. So for instance, let's say I don't believe in God. But boy, I hate it when people lie to me. So when people lie to me, that's my judgment standard. That's a bad person because they lied to me. And then you ask the person who set up that standard, have you ever lied? The moment they've gone against their own standard, that's what God's going to judge them by. And everybody's guilty to their own law. We break our own law all the time. So beware of the brilliant atheist. These scoffers are smart, really smart, and that's their problem. They think they are too smart to even consider the foolishness of a man who died on a cross and his blood paid for sin. Really? You guys believe that? 1 Corinthians 1 says that God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of this world. In other words, Christ is meant to cause them to stumble on their own pride. So you have here up Stephen Hawking. He is a theoretical physicist, where you could talk about evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins or neuroscientist Sam Harris. They are too smart to accept faith as a child. That's the whole problem. It's funny, as, as I put this up, I, atheist is spelled wrong. I use the, I use I after E except after, I before E except after C, and a guy came up who used to be a scoffer and said, you know, you spelled atheist wrong. But see what, that's, I did that purposely, see? Because if I do one thing wrong, the atheist won't listen to me. Because they never do anything wrong. But the problem is we all fail. We all deserve to be judged because we're all miserable sinners. Here's uh, what one brilliant, I mean, this guy's a brilliant writer. His name's Philip Roth. He's a, sold over 30 best-selling books. It's hard to read his books because he's really smart. But he's so smart that here's what he quipped. He said, when the whole world doesn't believe in God, it will then be a great place. And that, that's inspiring. When the whole world doesn't believe in God, it will then be a great place. The problem is, 
His dream has already come true. What he's imagined already exists. The Bible calls it hell. Beware of the tolerant believer. These people are scoffers in disguise. They actually would not like it if you called them a scoffer, but they are. For instance, I have here pictured the writer Elizabeth Gilbert. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love. She's one of Oprah Winfrey's besties, her BFFs. She wrote this in her book Eat, Pray, Love. Culturally, though not theologically, I am a Christian. I was born a Protestant of the white Anglo-Saxon persuasion, and while I do love that great teacher of peace who is called Jesus, and while I do reserve the right to ask myself in certain trying situations, what indeed he would do, I can't swallow that one fixed rule of Christianity. What is that one fixed rule? Insisting that Christ is the only path to God. I can't swallow that. That's what she said. I'm a Christian, but I, I don't buy that. Strictly speaking then, I cannot call myself a Christian, she says. Most of the Christians I know accept my feelings on this with grace and open-mindedness. But she's nice. See how nice she She's nice. She's tolerant to people. She wants everybody to have their own opinion. That's okay. She's nice. But the only problem with being tolerant is you have no tolerance for the opinion of God. That's the problem with tolerance. When I'm being nice to everybody and saying everybody has the right to believe what they want to believe, the only person who doesn't have the right to believe what they want to believe is the person who made us able to believe, which is God himself. God has no right to have an opinion. Jeremiah in chapter 2 is writing to his people who left God for false idols. And he's writing from God's heart. In chapter 2, verse 5, it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible to me. God is looking at his people and, he's, and he says to them, what, what is wrong with me that you left me? What about me don't you like that you have gone after the false idol? So if Jesus says he's the only way to God, which he does in John 14, verse 6, so if Jesus says he's the only way to God, and yet we say he is not, because there should be a lot of other options, isn't that another way to say we have no tolerance for his opinion? It's, a, it's, no, it's really not having tolerance. But isn't he the only one who died and rose again? So I think his opinion should have precedence. The final one is the practical atheist. And again, I spelled atheist wrong again, so please pardon me and forgive me. Hopefully you'll listen to me even though I spelled it wrong. Practical atheist. This last person may be the most prevalent because he or she dwells in all of us. If you notice closely, that picture looks an awful lot like me. That was me at the age of 21 years old. I said all the right words at that age. I even proudly went to church and said as a Christian, but the way I lived outside of it, I ran with the scoffers, I joked with the God-haters, and I joined the ranks of people who had no respect for Christ. I would go to the parties where Christ's name wasn't used in reverence, and I would laugh. I thought it was hilarious. I ran, I ran with those who were cool and kind and tolerant, but they weren't loyal to Jesus. I, he was on my lips, but he was far from my heart. Far from my heart. This may be worse than scoffing. 
Because I was sent to be light. Christians are spent to be, sent to be light, but when we laugh and join in with the darkness, we're doing the opposite for which we've been sent. And most of all, like uh, I remember reading this verse. This is one of the verses that cut me, Luke 6:46. So as a practical atheist, you can say, go ahead and hit that, Declan. You can say, their hearts are far from me, but they speak lips. But Luke 6:46 is that, that convicted me. Jesus says, why, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's practical atheism. I may believe, but practically the way I live doesn't, it acts like I don't believe it. So how do scoffers operate? How would I tell my graduating son and his friends how would, I, how would I tell them to, to stay away or be protected? How do you avoid this incredible influence of the kindness of the scoffer? What Peter's going to do is he's going to show us three things that motivate the scoffer, just to give you an idea, underneath the surface. Because what happens is scoffers put on a good face. Usually they're cool, usually they're smart, usually they're trendy. But what Peter's going to do is he's going to go deeper and he's going to uncover what's really going on. And this, this is really pretty insightful. First of all, verse, end of verse 3, he says, scoffers are actually just following their own sinful desires. That's what it says there in verse 3. So you can put it like this. Scoffers discern, determine what is true more from their lust than from logic. They are led more by their beliefs than their desires. That's what it means by they will follow their sinful desires. We assume, in our culture, we assume brilliant scientists and rational humanists are honest in their thinking. That they have come to their conclusions objectively. They looked at the cold hard facts and it led them to a theory which led them to a disbelief in God. Truthfully, that's really not honest. And that's what Peter's saying. That's not true. Lust is tainting their logic. They hide that from you, however, in underneath their intelligence and their justification. Most people who deny God deny Him because they don't like His holy standards. They don't like the way He wants us to live. Listen to this verse by Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley was this atheistic philosopher famous in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I use this because he was a scientist, he was a physicist, he was a smart dude. But he didn't believe in God, and here's the reason why. He says the pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with the need to justify a given form of personal or social behavior. Meaning, just finding truth, you don't come to it purely because inside there is this mingled desire to have what I want the way I want it. That's why he says, we often prove that there is no valid reason why we personally should not do as we want. So even in our argument, we're actually arguing why get off my back, I'm going to sin if I want to. That's the point. One commentator was looking at the way this Greek was structured in verse 3, and he even said there seemed to be this idea that the scoffer himself will self-identify with their lusts. That's weird. What does that mean? That means some people will like to be known by the sinful behavior they like to do. They'll take the identity of the sin that they enjoy. 
People wouldn't do that, would they? Would people actually say that they're pro-choice? You know, they don't mind babies that are aborted. Would they really say they're other sexual things that they like to do? Like things I really don't want to know what they do in the bedroom, but that's kind of how they like to be identified. Do you think people ever do that? I don't know. Have you ever seen some of people's tattoos? It's really weird. To me, a tattoo is permanent ink that identifies me. Have you ever seen some of the permanent markings people get on their skin? Because that's the epitome of self-identification. Like, like some people put booze and death skulls and naked women all over their body and grafting it on their skin saying, that's me. It's kind of weird. Remember that Greta Christina lady that wrote that wonderful treaty on how to comfort people when they die without God? Well, what also she, you don't know about her is she is a prolific writer of pornography and pornographic literature for lesbian women. In truth, she's really gross. But she's better than Christians. Second thing about scoffers, we'll see it in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of his coming? I've heard this blood moons thing for the last six years. What? When is the world going to blow up? I'm really excited about it. It hasn't happened yet. So here's the second point. Scoffers use questions not to ponder, but to persuade. They aren't asking where is the promise of his coming because they really know they're using it as a way to slander God in the, in the beliefs of Christians. They say it like this. Where, where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? Hasn't he been saying for years he's coming back? Haven't you ever gone to those revivals where the rapture is going to happen tomorrow? I don't see it. You believe that stuff? So what he's basically saying, Peter is saying, scoffers use questions not to learn about things, but to deride the character of God. You remember the Garden of Eden when the serpent came in and he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say if you ate that fruit, you'd die? Did he really say? Satan knows he said it. Yeah, he said it. Adam knows he said it. But Satan wasn't doing that. What he's doing, he's coming after Adam and saying, do you really trust him? I don't think he's good. I was talking to the men at camp saying, here's one tree, one tree in the garden, one tree. And he said, don't eat that. But he gives it says before that, but you can have every other tree. Every other fruit tree is yours, but not this one tree. Will you do that for me? Will you worship me? And Satan comes along and says, oh, he won't give you that tree, huh? Oh, he's not generous at all. Jackie, it's like your thing. He's not generous at all. No, he's generous. But Satan's question is to doubt God's goodness. Did he really say? Are you sure? You can really trust Jesus, really. He said he's coming back again. I don't see him. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's interesting, two weeks ago I talked about one of the resident cynics or 
false teachers, and he has a book, Love Wins, and you talk a lot about it, but that book is just loaded with questions, and every single question isn't to learn something. It's to mock God. Like one question, does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life? Does he really want to know the answer to that? Or is he just asking that so you'll be like, yeah, I knew God was not fair. That's the point of that question. But I'd love to talk to him. If he really is interested in that, I have some real answers for that. But most people, most scoffers, don't ask you questions to learn. They ask you questions so they can drop the mic and leave like they just, they're so smart. You really believe that Bible? <laughs> it's all kind of, why does it have so many contradictions? Drop mic, leave. And the whole, then what you do is like, oh my, you're right. No, I can't trust this Bible. It's to deride the character of God and his word. Third thing about scoffers, and we find it in verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluge. That means just full of water, and perished, but the same, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter is saying that the same way God created, he can destroy, but the scoffer doesn't want to hear it. Instead of listening and believing, they just ignore that truth. So the third thing about scoffers is they deliberately ignore God. That's what verse 5 says. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. What's the fact? God created the world with his mouth. God, God watered the earth with water, but he also destroyed the earth with water. And someday, by the same mouth that he created, he's going to destroy the earth with fire. Can he not do that? If God can make the earth with, a, with his word, can't he destroy it with his word? But the skeptic doesn't, skeptic doesn't like that. So what they do is they say, you know, life... It's just this pattern that will keep going on. And we've learned to manage life. We have air conditioning. We have progressed in cars. We're someday going to figure out this, the pattern of climate. We're going to figure it all out. And then we're going to create our own Eden. Look at medicine. How it can keep people alive. Life is just going to keep going on. But really the truth of the matter is, they are ignoring the truth that God someday is going to judge this world. It's, uh, this past week, I went to Barnes & Noble's bookstore out by the Lakes Mall down by Muskegon. And in Barnes & Noble's, they're selling old-fashioned stereo system where they, you, know, you put a record player on there. And as they're selling that, above that, they have a counter where they're selling the actual old albums, what they looked like when they sold it. And I'm telling you, I started looking at them, and I got like this flashback to when I was 10, 11, and 12. I saw the first one that got me was Fleetwood Mac Rumors. If you've ever seen that, it's a black and white photo cover, and my sister had it. And I would stare at it when I was a kid. And then they had on their James Taylor White album. And then they had up there, they had... Abbey Road, the Beatles. I remember, you know, and they're all walking across the street like that, you know? In my mind, just, I remember seeing it. My sister had that album, too. Then I saw Michael Jackson's Thriller, you know, in that red coat, you know, and he, you know, does that. And I'm telling you, I, I went back to a time in my life 
I can remember I had nothing to do some Saturdays when the rain would come down. I'd just stare at that album and look at it and listen to it with my sister, thinking, man, this is gonna, life never, never changes. I'll be like this forever. It was a weird feeling. Some of my summers seemed so long as a kid. So long. But then I realized this year I'm turning 52, and last Friday, it's three days ago, I just performed a funeral for a man that was 53. Do you really think your life will just go on? Scoffers want you to believe it will. Why, why do you worry about it? Because the truth is, the reason they want you to think that is because they don't want to think that. They're scared. It's kind of like when you have a cavity in the back of your mouth, you don't have money to pay for it, you ignore it. They're scared of facing a holy God, so they try to ignore the bad news. They deliberately overlook. Romans says they suppress truth. And they aren't really prepared to meet God. So let's say I had a son who was graduating and I had to sum up this message in my final, my final message. What would I say? Here's what I would say. Dear son, you will die someday. Prepare for that someday today. Love, Dad. 